Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this late July day in Washington, D.C., where we would never fault one of our guests for their journalistic ambition. I'm Alex Roy, political correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you from my living room where I finally established my home office. I'm delighted today, of course, to be joined by Adam Walner, McClatchy, D.C.'s politics editor and someone who is currently neck deep in editing a half dozen pre-writes in anticipation of Joe Biden's running mate selection. Walner, welcome. And boy, do those need some editing. I mean, my goodness, I don't know, I don't know what you and, and Dave have been doing this week, but boy, oh boy, I, I'm going to be up late tonight editing those, I think. Mostly drinking, I think, is right. what we've been doing. Yeah. <laughs> Coffee. That makes sense. Coffee, that makes clear. sense. Yeah. yeah. And of course, we are thrilled to be joined today by Francesca Chambers, McClatchy's White House correspondent, who is literally coming to us from the grounds of the White House. Francesca, welcome. Thank you. Yes, I make a disclaimer. There could be rodents. There could be squirrels. <laughs> there could be any number of people who end up walking through here today. It's going to be a, a real ride. But we are anticipating that we might see the president today. So saddle up. We have told Francesca that if she is able to grab Kellyanne Conway to appear on the show, that she should take the opportunity to do so. <laughs> um, so just be prepared for that listener, a possible guest appearance by Kellyanne Conway. I would make that a um, very small does, possibility. Very, <laughs> Don't be too very small. It, you, you never know. Infinitesimally small possibility. <laughs> but if Kellyanne Conway does not come on the show, though, today we are going to discuss the aforementioned Veep Sticks. Just days before Biden is expected to announce his highly anticipated decision. Who's the favorite? What's the latest? And is he really going to pick someone other than Kamala Harris? We'll discuss. But first... The culture war has driven an ever-widening wedge between Republicans and Democrats in this country in just about all things politics and policy. But it hadn't yet done much to shape the methods each party's campaign uses to reach out to voters. Well, until now. As a bit of background, campaigns are by and large mirrors of each other, at least in the ways they use to reach out to voters. Yes, of course, the messages are different, the policies are different, the candidates are different, but just about every campaign has traditionally used the same mix of political tactics. You run TV ads, digital ads, a bit of mail, and you and staffers and your volunteers knock on voters' doors. It's that last part, however, that's changing. Because amid the pandemic, one side, the Democrats, has mostly stopped knocking on doors, while the other side, the Republicans, have, in many cases, continued doing so. The contrast is most stark in both presidential campaigns. Joe Biden's campaign has stopped doing any kind of door knocking whatsoever, and in some select states, the Trump campaign has continued to knock on voters' doors. Adam, can you explain for the listener the, the differences here between the imperative to try to reach out to voters and the concerns about health and safety for their volunteers and staffers? Why the difference here? Yeah, I mean, I think as you sort of laid out there, I mean, it is kind of a microcosm into the broader differences between both parties, just on how they are viewing uh, coronavirus, how they're viewing, you know, the uh, the precautions that, that have been recommended to, to, to be put in place to prevent the spread of it, such as, you know, wearing masks, staying six feet apart, all of that. I mean, you know, you look at polls and Democrats, you know, are more likely to say that, you know, that they are more, more worried about the coronavirus. They're more likely to say that they are wearing masks on a regular basis and are, you know, abiding by social distancing guidelines, those sort of things. But it's become really extreme, you know, when you look at, you know, the, these methods that, that you mentioned between the two parties where Democratic groups, for the most part, and, you know, I know that there's one exception that I'll let you get into a little bit later, Alex, that have stopped basically all of their voter canvassing since the pandemic 
began because, you know, it, you could definitely see that the possibility for, for the spread of COVID-19 there, where you're, you're directly face to face with voters, even if a volunteer chooses to wear a mask, there's no guarantee a voter will be. And you don't know where, you know, if they've been exposed or, you know, what sort of activities they've been engaging in. Meanwhile, the Republicans have, have so kind of gone full steam ahead, you know, you know, and that starts at the very top with President Donald Trump and the RNC going forward with, you know, what is traditionally a very integral part of, of any presidential or even down ballot campaign. Campaign, right. You know, you can it's one of many tools sort of in the tool belt that you use to ensure that you can get your voters to the polls on Election Day. And it's usually something that would really start to pick up around this time and even more so after Labor Day when you kind of start going into that, that get out the vote mode. And I think just given that there's been that difference in, in opinion between uh, members of both parties on just you know viewing the severity of the coronavirus, I think that's why Democratic groups have been a little more hesitant to engage in that activity because they're more likely to experience blowback from members of their own party if they do that. Whereas on the Republican side, you know, I, not to say that they don't understand the risks involved with this, but I think just the fact that they are downplaying this a little bit more relatively to folks on the other side of the aisle, they feel more comfortable moving forward with it with precautions in place, of course. And they may get backlash from outside forces, but not from within their own party, at least to, to this point. And I should say, I mean, to lay out some of the concerns for for the people who, who knock on the doors and, and the voters as well. You know, I wrote a story this past week about a group called the Progressive Turnout Project, which is this relatively well-funded, independent organization. It's not legally allowed to coordinate with the Biden campaign or any party apparatus, but they had a mission to begin the election cycle that they were going to find mostly infrequent Democratic voters and try to convince them to turn out. And they were convinced, they were convinced really until this day that the best way to try to get them to turn out was actually going to their door, establishing a personal relationship, having face-to-face communication. Now, that group, despite all other Democratic groups deciding not to, to launch a canvassing operation this summer, they almost exactly a month ago in late June decided to launch it. And it has been, in interviews with a lot of those staffers, you know, a disaster over the course of the last month. And just to boil down to, to why, of course, this group just as I'm sure the Trump campaign does and other Republican campaigns who are canvassing, they mandate that their staffers wear masks, right? They mandate that they try to stay far apart. They distribute hand sanitizer. The problem is you're only talking about half the equation, right? When a staffer shows up to the door, they can have all the safety protocols, but there's no guarantee that the voter is going to have that. And in fact, there are stories. And, and, and as I wrote about one woman, her name is Maddie Lewis, outside of Cedar Rapids in, in Iowa, you know, recounted to me how she talked with a woman for several minutes. They were standing within six feet of each other. She was wearing a mask. The woman wasn't. And at the end of their conversation, the woman said, oh, you know, my husband, he's sick right now with COVID inside. And, and the, the, this woman, Maddie Lewis, was, was shocked, right? Because she had just spent a few minutes talking with this woman. She's worried about exposure. Now, you know, a few days later, Maddie got sick. She was terrified that she had contracted the virus. As it turns out, she hadn't, but that's just kind of the experience that a lot of these staffers have gone through. And this is why a lot of Democratic campaigns don't think that it's worth it to put your, your staffers and voters, their health on the line. I guess, Francesca, the question to you is how much does this tactic do you think really matter? I mean, how much, you know, campaigns do a million different things to reach out to voters. But at the same time, there is this sense embedded across the political spectrum, that door knocking is the quote unquote gold standard of how to reach out to voters. How big a deal should we should we make of this? 
as a difference between, you know, one side's doing it and the other's not. But it's not just about talking to voters for the sake of trying to persuade them to vote for your candidate. It's about identifying voters and making sure that they still live mm -hmm. at the same address. It's the people who you thought they were. It's about making sure that they're registered to vote still. All those things are really important. And I was talking to a Trump campaign official yesterday who was telling me that they are still door knocking and that is part of the reason why. They had been getting a lot of information from the rallies the president was having. He's not having rallies at this point. You know, they cannot hold them even if they wanted to in states because states are not allowing gatherings of that size. And so they have continued to door knock. As you said, they have people wearing masks. They're encouraging them to be socially distant, those sorts of things when they go door to door. But this is how they've continued to identify voters. And I know that we're going to have a whole discussion about what the rest of my piece, that's not my piece, but the rest of my piece about how they're being creative. But this is one of the ways that they have tried to be creative. Creative might be a strong word because these are like time old traditions, but, <laughs> but, but get creative during the pandemic with ways to identify voters instead of the rallies. Another way that they're doing that, as I detail in my story, is landlines. They've returned to the time old <laughs> tradition of calling people on their landline phone. And this is actually really fascinating to me. I think they're often known as like teletown halls, uh, but town hall mm -hmm. signifies that maybe voters get to ask questions. That's not what's happening here. These are really, as they say, tele-rallies. What they are doing is they are calling up landline phones in states like Iowa, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Arizona, and others. And they're just, I don't know how they're defining their list. They have not made that public, how they're dialing through people. But essentially, if you're in one of those states, you'll get a call on your landline phone and it will say something to the effect of like, if you'd like to participate in a teletown hall or teleconference or tele-rally, I guess tele-rally is the word they're using, with the president, please stay on the line. And so then people just stay on the line to listen to Donald Trump for about half an hour or so, talk about stuff involving their state, about Joe Biden. But th this is really fascinating because they are getting from that, they are getting information on voters and IDing them that way as well, because they can at least tell if someone stays on the line and what household is doing that. Uh, so. That's how they're sort of accomplishing this problem of also not being able to do some of these expansive in-person efforts. Right. And of course, they have also, I mean, as you say, I mean, they have also been hemmed in by the pandemic, although not to the degree that, that Democrats have been um, in the way that they campaign. I mean, Adam, I mean, part of the question here is when you talk to Democrats, some will, will roll their eyes about this discussion because even though, yes, they will concede that being able to have a face-to-face -face talk with someone is really important especially when that person from your campaign is a veteran uh, field staffer, someone who knows how to talk to voters, how to knock on their doors cold and, and get them interested in the election. But that said, they'll say, look, you know, this is this is a different time. This is in the year 1996. Right. You can reach people through text messaging. You can reach people through digital ads. People are spending more time online than ever before because of this pandemic. And that's where we need to meet voters. And that this whole discussion and this whole fixation on, on canvassing is is overrated. Right. I think heading into 2020, even before the pandemic hit, you know, I think a lot of operatives were already starting to make that argument that, you know, we should be relying less on the traditional door to door face to face voter canvassing and start to embrace more of these, you know, sort of new technologies that allow us to reach more you know, voters more efficiently. You know, text messaging has certainly exploded in recent election cycles. To give a shout out to our old colleague, Emily Kaday, she wrote a really, you know, I think forward looking story earlier this year about how Bernie Sanders' primary campaign was really embracing that before a lot of, uh, of other folks were. So I think the pandemic may accelerate some of those trends 
in that case where you start to see campaigns, you know, focus more on things like text messaging and even like these really targeted digital ads that you can do while, you know, in like you mentioned, you know, door to door canvassing may seem like something from a bygone era at some point. But I do think to Francesca's point, I think you do get a little more certainty with the door to door canvassing in terms of like, okay, I know that this person is living here now. You know, you have that face to face interaction, which I think, you know, in terms of trying to, to make arguments for somebody, whether to actually persuade them or just to, to, to vote for your candidate or just to make sure they turn out to vote. I think having that face-to-face interaction, you know, can't be understated. But, but at the same time, you know, I do think that, you know, as we move forward into future election cycles, that will become a less important part of, of the, the calculation campaigns are making as they start to invest more in some of these new technologies to reach out to voters. And Alex, can well, I, look, can I, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say yeah, please. two important things. One. Did Kellyanne walk by? Is, that, <laughs> is she coming on now? No, no. no. Two important things. One. Adam, I just want to follow up on that and say that part of it, too, is when you text message people or you're getting them from online, you don't know what county they live in. You can't compare Mm -hmm. that to voter registrations, particularly in these battleground areas where they're counting on a certain number of votes from a very specific county in order to be able to win the entire state and its electoral votes, at least at someone's home, if you know they're Republican, who they support, Democrat, whatever, you can help make those calculations better. And I think that is a big point. But I also don't want to make it sound like the Trump campaign is not technologically savvy, by the way. They certainly have a text messaging program. They have a campaign app. The town halls I was talking about, tele-rallies, they're also streaming those live on Facebook. They say that each one of those has gotten a million views on Facebook, each one individually as well, in addition to. So I do, I do not want to make it sound like they're not right. turning to those tools before we move on. Yeah, that's a good point, right? I mean, we're talking about kind of this broad universe of things that all campaigns are doing right now. It's more of a question of what do you prioritize and what do you sort of put more resources toward, you know, at this point. And then especially when you're in a pandemic, weighing weighing those those health risks as well. Look, we don't need to get bogged down always in the minutia of campaigns. I think political reporters tend to fixate on that a little bit too much. This is where if Dave Katniss was on the, the show, he'd make a joke about the obsession with field staff <laughs> before every, you know, and, and, and how, and boy, it sure, sure mattered this past election. But what I would say is when you talk to Democrats and you talk about what they are worried about in this election, and the truth is, even a lot of Democrats who are usually very cautious aren't worried about much. They feel good right now, point blank. However, one thing they continue to worry about is getting their voters out, making sure that they do turn out actually getting them to to either vote absentee by mail or to show up for early voting or to show up on election day. And that's where canvassing does play a role. I mean, that that kind of communication, particularly we're not just talking about showing up at a door once, right? In theory, you send the same staffer to the same house several times over the course of several months to try to build a relationship. And that that kind of pressure, that kind of social pressure that that staffer can bring can make a difference, can actually convince someone to turn out. And that's something that, you know, look, Democrats are worried about that. And I think that's why when you talk to even some of these groups, and we should emphasize again, that Joe Biden campaign, the DNC groups like the DCCC and the DSCC, none of them are canvassing right now. But when you start to, to dig in a little bit, you sometimes detect, you know, some optimism that maybe in a couple months they'll be able to, that maybe, you know, that they still in their bones would like to be able to do this and that, you know, particularly if the election gets closer, that they might might actually try to, to launch a, a campaign. All that said, and, and we're, of course, like putting aside the, the very legitimate health and safety questions. I mean, again, Progressive Turnout Project had to suspend its canvassing program this week because of the internal uproar from its own staffers, 
even if you are willing to put that aside, there are still problems with canvassing. But there are a lot of people who don't want to talk to people at their front doors. Right. right in, now, in a right? pandemic yeah. or not. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Even in normal times, you know, yeah. canvassers will joke about the hostility you can get because people don't want to be bothered and they certainly don't want to be bothered by politics. But if you're doing it in a pandemic, you're risking really alienating some people. You know, I had a Republican months ago tell me that they thought they would have to start to poll potential voters to just to model whether or not they would be even open to someone coming to their door. And we should point out too, you know, I spoke with, you know, Francesca, or I think Adam, you were talking about how Emily Cadet wrote a story about the Bernie Sanders campaign and how their, you know, their emphasis on text messaging. I spoke with the guy who masterminded that, Chuck Rocha, for this story. And, and you know, he, he criticized PTP. And at the same time, he said, look, door knocking is overrated in his view. It, it is an inefficient process to walk from door to door in neighborhoods, sometimes it takes, you can hit all of like one door every 10 minutes. Compare that to text messaging. The idea that this is some kind of uh, bomb or some kind of perfect silver bullet to turn out voters, it is in itself questioned in normal times, much less in a pandemic. There's a, there's a lot to consider here. And I think it'll be interesting to see if ultimately a lot of these democratic groups, if the pandemic did start to abate in the country, whether or not they pull the trigger, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Let's be real. It's the perfect time to go back in time with the stories of hip-hop's craziest parties, nastiest beefs, flyest fashions, and best verses. Like that's an all-time wow. underrated, unbelievable beat. And maybe I'm a sick, sick man, but that is the part of the <laughs> game that I love. It's like chef's kiss. Coming at you from Mogul, the Mogul Mixtapes. Catch new episodes every Wednesday. Listen for free on Spotify. This is hip-hop to me. One thing that we know that is going to happen much sooner rather than later, Joe Biden is going to announce his running mate. It is expected to come next week. And there is already, as you would expect, a flurry of stories that have emerged in the media, uh, different candidates jockeying for a position. I think it's fair to say, Francesca and Adam, at this point, the favorites are seen in no particular order as Kamala Harris, Susan Rice, Karen Bass, and who am I forgetting? Is there? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's tough to, you know, not to avoid getting into like a VP power rankings discussion here. But I think you'd also have to throw, you know, Val Demings in that mix, Tammy mm. Duckworth and Elizabeth Warren as well. I don't think she's out of it. I think, yeah, there certainly seems to have been, you know, a lot of momentum in recent weeks towards, you know, not only picking a woman, but a woman of color. But Elizabeth Warren still does seem to be somewhat of an exception to that, at least being, being in the mix, you know, based on, on, on what we're hearing from, from Democrats right now. Yeah, Adam, and don't accidentally publish any of those profiles you're editing. No, well, yeah, let's. We're, yeah, we're not going to load any of those pre-writes in, into the system, you know, right? They're just going to live in a Google Doc. No dangers of being resist. published ahead of time. Moving on, I, I, I think the the primary question, at least the way, Adam, that I think mm -hmm. you and, and I and up on the politics team have looked at this, is if to ask ourselves, is it really going to be someone other than Kamala Harris? And I think we've seen some indication of that. Francesca, and I'm interested in your reaction to this, there have been... A handful of stories that emerged this week, seemingly from people in the Biden orbit who aren't thrilled at the idea of Kamala Harris being the pick. And I want to, to read one quote here from John Morgan, who's a longtime well-known bundler in Florida, a big Joe Biden fan. And he said on the record in a CNBC story published this week, she would be running for the president the day of the inauguration. For me, loyalty and friendship should mean something. I really stark quote criticizing her for ambition. And I'm wondering, it feels like 
there's been a, a, a critical mass of that kind of commentary that she either, you know, was too hard on Joe Biden during the primary or that she'd be too interested in running for president, you know, and basically depicting her as a little too ambitious. I'm wondering if, if that isn't backfiring a little bit, Francesca. I'm pausing because Joe Biden was vice president and Joe Biden ended uh-huh. up running for president. Hillary Clinton was also secretary of state and ended up running for president. I mean, is that not what people who are vice president do? I fully expect Mike Pence will also run for president after Donald Trump is out of office. It's 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 an opportunity to learn on the job and a stepping stone. I mean, that is that is generally what the job is. So that's an interesting argument. But as far as whether or not she was too hard on Joe Biden, she was playing to win at the time. She she at that time, we thought that she was a top tier candidate. She was polling in the top tier after she hit Joe Biden in that debate when she talked about the busing. She was winning. She was ahead. And there are other reasons that her campaign faltered after the fact. You could also argue that she was demonstrating at that time with her attack on Joe Biden, how effective that she would be as a vice presidential nominee out on the campaign trail, you know, sparring with Mike Pence and combating Donald Trump. So for everything that's a con, you could also say as a pro. And I hesitate to attribute characteristics, as everyone should, to women that you would not attribute to a man. I believe that is the definition of sexism. Right. Yes, so, yes, yes, yes. I, it's a real problem. I, I, I think the question with these stories, you know, for a lot of people in Washington is whether or not this is being orchestrated by the Biden campaign, by senior officials within the Biden campaign to try to lay the groundwork as an explanation for why they're not going to pick Kamala. If that's the case, I don't think they did a very good job. But I know at least some people who would like to see Kamala Harris picked as a running mate have interpreted it that way and that their hopes of her being picked have actually uh, been diminished somewhat this week. Or again, if this is just some people, some Biden supporters taking it upon themselves to throw their bodies in front of her selection. That's how I see it anyway. And again, I mean, it even received a response last night from General Malley Dillon, the, the campaign manager for Joe Biden, basically saying that there's nothing wrong with ambition. All the women that they are considering picking are extremely qualified. You know, a, a rare sort of public comment from the campaign manager to weigh in on this in order to push back on some of the criticism. So I, I don't think it's going well for those those Biden allies trying to stop. Adam, if, you know, if it's not Kamala Harris, though, we should be clear. I mean, no one no one knows. It really is a big question mark. Do we think it would be Karen Bass at that point? Do we think it would be Elizabeth Warren? Yeah, I think, you know, to your point, I think most, you know, Democrats and most just political observers in general would still consider Kamala Harris to be the odds on favorite, though, you know, by no means some overwhelming front runner. I think it is kind of a question then of who is kind of that number two choice, right? You know, I don't necessarily see any of the other candidates that we talked about having a huge leg up over the other one. You know, Karen Bass and Vel Demons have really only entered the national spotlight in the past few months during this VP discussion. So I think that, that could be a pro that, you know, somewhat of, of a fresher face nationally, even if they have been involved in, in politics for, for quite some time, being that their, their record hasn't been as thoroughly vetted as someone like Kamala Harris, who has obviously been through the ringer as, as a presidential candidate. You know, Tammy Duckworth, Elizabeth Warren in the mix. You know, it seems like it's been Susan Rice's moment in the sun the past week or so, uh, where she had, you know, there were quite a few stories written about her potentially rising up the VP list, someone who obviously worked very closely with Joe Biden in the Obama administration, but I think would bring a lot of baggage, certainly on the foreign policy side that would draw a lot of criticism 
from Republicans in particular. So, you know, again, anything could happen. Campaigns, you know, are always very tight-lipped about this kind of thing. They want it to be a surprise and suspenseful until the end, which is why I think that, you know, they're still, you know, even at this late stage, relatively speaking, that we're expecting to pick next week that they're, you know, I wouldn't be surprised by any one of those half a dozen women that we mentioned uh, if they were ultimately selected. And looking at Kamala Harris's strengths and weaknesses, I think it's really a question of whether or not selecting her is able to broadly satisfy all parts of the Democratic coalition and some independent voters, or if because she's kind of in between um, that she satisfies no one. I mean, just as an example, her own political ideology, you know, is she liberal enough relative to Joe Biden that some elements of the left say, okay, you know, we're, we're more on board and more excited about this candidacy, while at the same time, people in the middle aren't, you know, sort of repelled by the selection in a way that they might be with someone like Elizabeth Warren? Or does Kamala not satisfy anyone on the left? And meanwhile, people in the center who like Joe Biden, because I think he's more moderate, say, oh, but he's, you know, look who he's picking the VP. He's picking this California liberal. You know, I, that, I think that's the equation. And you can kind of make arguments for, for both sides, uh, not just on her own ideology, but through a range of different subjects. But I, I mean, Francesca, would you would at this point, would you be surprised if it's someone other than Kamala Harris? No, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I would but I would say that when you come to Kamala Harris's perceived weaknesses by the left, it would be harder to attack her for some of the things that Donald Trump has been trying to attribute to Joe Biden. For instance, he wants to push this, they want to defund the police argument, even though Biden has not said he wants to abolish the police or defund the police. And Kamala Harris would have a pretty good answer to that and say, you know, she would be able to be like, I don't want to defund the police. I was a prosecutor. I put bad guys in jail, man. And so I think that in some ways it would it would make it it would make it a lot harder for Donald Trump to be able to tack that ticket as radical leftists. And when it comes to policing, there are other arguments that I think that she would be able to make having had that that background for reforms and having been in the system and what she thinks needs to change with respect to that, too. So I do think that there are unique arguments that she or even about Deming of course, would be able to make that that might not, as you say, bring on more progressives, but could bring over more people in the middle who think that the perhaps the things that the Republican Party is saying are a little bit extreme. Right. I mean, that that's that's her sweet spot is essentially the Goldilocks candidate and all this who isn't too liberal, but isn't too moderate at the same time and is able to split the difference perfectly on ideology, on, on her law and order background and really any any number of subjects so next week, I'm going to be on vacation. Boy, yeah, you really, you really now, timed that one well. It actually will be the second time in my career that I will have been on vacation during a major pick for the vice presidency. Last did it in 2012 when Mitt Romney picked Paul Ryan. So I have a real habit of, of doing this. I appreciate you not uh, firing me over it. Paul <laughs> well, well, um, well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll discuss when I return. <laughs> so moving on to what is my favorite segment every week where Adam and Francesca are going to tell me something new, fresh, or original out of their notebook. Francesca, you're up okay. first. Dramatic pause there. Francesca, it's me. you're up first. <laughs> I want the bubble podcast stakes. So I, you know, I'm going to pull out from my story that I did this week on the Trump campaign about the new campaign manager, Bill Stepien, and the things that he's doing differently and changing. He's already made some some personnel switches, and that might not seem to the average person like a big deal. But for their campaign, it's seen as providing more structure inside of the campaign, getting people like a battleground state director. They did not have a battleground state director before. So 
having that in place 100 days out is something that's seen as uh, as good. Different changes like that are things he's making. We mentioned the rallies before and uh, how they're trying to get Donald Trump in front of audiences. One thing that the White House has been doing, not the campaign, but the White House has been doing as a part of that is you might have noticed Donald Trump is now taking day trips to places like North Carolina, to Florida. They're putting him in front of small groups of people where everyone can be COVID tested and he can still get out there. He can still deliver his message. He manages to attack Joe Biden and talk about politics during those things, even if the premise of him being there is an official White House event on issues. So it's just another way in which his entire apparatus overall, including the White House, are, are finding different ways to get the president out in front of people in a safe way. And I'll continue to explore that theme as we head into the election. Francesca, great stuff. Adam, what do you got? I just wanted to highlight a slight shift that's happened in the battleground state map over the, the past few weeks. And we've talked a lot about this podcast on sort of that intense focus from both parties on, on the core six battleground states of Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. But a couple developments on that. Dave Katniss reported that the Trump campaign and its allied super PAC have gone dark in Michigan, you know, which is obviously one of those key states that he was able to, to flip in, in, in 2016 to beat Hillary Clinton. His campaign stopped airing TV and radio ads there last week. The Super PAC's been off the air since early July, and they're kind of starting to shift in, into um, a couple other states on defense that, that they are defending. And then on the other side of that, you know, Joe Biden's still sticking, you know, with ads in those six states, but he's beginning to reach out a little bit and test the waters in some other states. Earlier this month, his campaign did, did a flight of ads in Texas. They started airing some ads recently in Nevada. And just today, they announced that they are going into Ohio, you know, one of those uh, traditional swing states that had been kind of seen as shifting more to the Republican side, but now is looking competitive again. They're going up with an ad, albeit in just two markets. Again, I think just to kind of test the waters and make a little bit of, of a splash there. But some signs here that, you know, the battleground state map, maybe, you know, if you're a Democrat, it's expanding. If you're a Republican, maybe shrinking a little bit here, less than 100 days out from the election. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting to watch the Biden campaign test the waters, as you said, the Ohio ad, the digital buy in Texas. They argue that their national cable buys also reach some of these voters. And so you just see them kind of itching to want to expand into these new battleground mm-hmm. states deep into red territory, but probably somewhere in the back of their mind, still haunted by the memory of 2016. I and mean, I think we're going to see a lot of that push and pull really for over the, the next uh, 100 days or so of the, the election. Mine, just one thing to, if we're going to look ahead that I've uncovered in my reporting, actually in the head of Joe Biden's pick as vice president, a lot of liberal groups, you know, of course, are weighing in on who Biden should pick, really lobbying hard in many cases for Elizabeth Warren. But they're not all just fixated on the VP. And it's something that if Joe Biden wins, something to keep a, a close eye on, a lot of lobbying over his cabinet officials. I think a lot of liberals have realized particularly among activists, that that's where a lot of the policymaking happens. It happens at the education secretary level or the defense secretary or whomever, and that these positions need to be filled by ardent progressives in a way that maybe didn't always happen under Barack Obama and that there wasn't the kind of focus then. Uh, Sean McElwee, who's a well-known troublemaker, I guess you could say, for someone <laughs> in, in the Democratic Party establishment, but is actually a liberal activist who's had a lot of the success reaching out to some elements of the Democratic Party establishment, launching recently the Progressive Cabinet Project group that already, again, is starting to look ahead to these possible cabinet picks. So just something to to look at in case you want to start measuring the drapes in the White House uh, for for Joe Biden, which, hey, you know, some, some Democrats are just thinking ahead there. 
Adam and Francesca, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great job, as always. Francesca, we'll try for Kellyanne next time. With your luck, she'll come by next week while you're not here. That sounds about right, actually, <laughs> and, and I hope she does. Adam, thanks as always. Yep, thanks, man. That's it for me. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Cobra. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.